and welcome to the podcast. Okay, today is an exciting day because we have a uh, return of our very first podcast guest, Mr. Tom Brandt. So, Tom, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's great to be back. Yes, welcome. And of course, our uh, our co-host, Dan. Hey, Paul. How you doing? Hey, Tom. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. All right, Tom. So, we wanted to bring you back. It's been a while and... Uh, you know, things have changed. You're working at a different place. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. I'll let you kind of reintroduce yourself to everybody. Why don't we start with that? Just tell us what you're doing now. Sure. Well, it's great to be back after, I think, 60-plus podcasts since we started. <laughs> so thanks for the invitation. Um, at that point in time, I was the chief risk officer for the IRS. And about a year and a half ago, I moved over to the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board, or the TSP, where I'm serving as their chief risk officer and their director of planning and risk. Nice. All right. Well, taking care of our, our monies, our, our retirement money. That's yes. good. Our tax money and then the retirement yes. money. That's right. That's right. Um, well, I'll kick it off here. So, you know, speaking of which, I mean, when we had our first risk chat, that was back in 2018, you know, what do you think, uh, what are some things that are popping out at you that, that have changed in the federal ERM community, you know, since 2018? You know, what's kind of like the good stuff? What are things that we still are striving to achieve? Sure. Well, it's, you know, if I th- reflect back to 2018, that was still within a couple of years of OMB, you know, issuing the update to the circular that set out expectations around enterprise risk management for government. And I think what we've seen in the five or so years since that first podcast was um, much broader adoption and implementation of ERM across government, which is good to see. And for those agencies that, you know, began ERM implementation early on, I think we're seeing strong maturity, growth in their programs, in particular, moving beyond just sort of, you know, the practice of identifying and assessing risks, but using that whole process to integrate with strategy and budget and decision making within agencies. And I think that, you know, is truly the intent also to inform decision making within agencies and to help executives understand kind of the the risks associated with, with, you know, different decisions, with, you know, issues, with, you know, innovation, change management, I think we've also seen in a number of agencies where the ERM staff are partnering with their business units Mm -hmm. um, to understand and address different program risks. And in many cases, actually, the the risk officers or the risk staff are serving in a consulting and advising role as leaders or program managers are um, undertaking new initiatives or trying to understand program risks. They're reaching out to the ERM offices for assistance with that, which I think is, is great. And then at the end of the day, again, I think this, the whole um, intent of improving decision-making and making sure that folks have you know, information at hand to understand kind of what are some of the risks associated with different activities, um, the options that they can consider, and in some cases, understanding the risks they're accepting by yeah. pursuing a particular objective. Yeah, exactly. yes, absolutely. Well, people are thinking about risk. There's, there's a you know, culture of thinking about your risks more so than ever before, too, right? I mean, if nothing else. Yes. No. Yes. So, and I just want to throw intersperse some stuff in here, but um, yes, yeah, well, just one thing, the challenges too, I'd be curious to hear, because one thing, you know, we had a couple podcasts ago, a couple agencies, I mean, they still don't even have chief risk officers. Yes. I guess you don't have to have one, but right. I don't know, what are some challenges? Yeah, well, that that is an, an area where I think we're still challenged. The circular by design was, um, you know, gave a lot of leeway and flexibility. Mm-hmm. And of course, there isn't a one-size-fits-all, so agencies need to implement ERM in a way that works for their structure and their organization. But I 
do think in some of the firm surveys that have been done have actually shown that those agencies that have had a designated chief risk officer or an ERM director have made greater progress yeah. in implementing um, ERM within their organizations. Um, I do think in terms of some other challenges, um, we're still you know, trying to get broader acknowledgement and recognition about the value of ERM across government, across mm-hmm. agencies, and throughout the executive ranks. Um, you know, we still have a number of executives that question, why do I need mm-hmm. ERM? I already know, you know what could go wrong or what my risks are, but yet there are too many examples and instances where executives and agencies are caught by surprise um, and where we still have ongoing crises that I think you know, could have probably been um, identified where we could have reduced the likelihood or reduced the impact of those events occurring had we had a broader adoption of, of ERM. And I think another area where there's still opportunity is to get you know, greater um, support and advocacy from places like OMB. I mean, they started with the circular. I think they've been trying to help move um, ERM along, but I do think there's a stronger role they can play in promoting and encouraging the practice of ERM. I think GAO could help um, sort of by spotlighting, again, agencies that have you know, moved uh, the ball forward in that space and agencies where that's lacking. And lastly, I think that um, the administration um, could, could talk more about you know, how ERM can help, particularly, again, as we're seeing crises that are occurring and maybe asking the question, you know, do you have an ERM program? Mm-hmm. Was this something that was identified? And if you don't have ERM, why don't you? Yeah. I right? mean, hindsight's <laughs> always twenty twenty. Sure. But, I mean, you really want to prepare for this. Um, Tom, could you discuss your role at IRS and how it differs from FRTIB you know, what, what's the same? What's different? Sure. Well, of course, the agencies are very different, yeah. right? So IRS, you know, 85,000 people all over the country, um, mission of collecting taxes. Um, and for, the, for most of the time that I served as the chief risk officer, the agency was dealing with significant budget constraints. Mm-hmm. So the budget had been cut for a number of years, you know, loss of staffing. And yet, while trying to deal with those reductions in resources, the agency was continually being asked to do more. So to take on new program responsibilities, the Affordable Care Act, you know, years ago, all the support during the pandemic and the, uh, the COVID relief, and much of that being asked to do uh, and take on without additional resources. <clears throat> you know, at FRTIB, it's a much smaller organization. We're about 250 employees. We have a very clear mission, a singular mission, and that is to you know, serve as the uh, 401k, more or less, for the federal workforce. Um, so unlike at the IRS, where we're taking folks' money, you know, to fund the government, at, at FRTIB, we're helping, you know, the federal workforce accrue savings for their retirement um, and hopefully, you know, prepare them to um, be able to retire with, you know, sufficient resources to, to fund their retirement. So very different missions. But in terms of the practice of ERM, a lot of similarities. So yeah. you know, still going through the process of identifying what your risks are and understanding the impact that they could have, prioritizing those. And for those that could have most significant impact, um, putting in place risk treatment plans. Um, the other thing that I think is, is characteristic of both the IRS and FRTIB is the, the buy-in from top leadership. That's good. And that, of course, is, is a critical, you know, success factor for the agencies is whether or not they've got, you know, top leadership support. And, and thankfully, I had that at IRS, and we see that at FRTIB, where the leadership understands how the process, the information, the results can help them uh, make better decisions um, and be ahead of, you know, you know, what's around the corner and where things could potentially go off course. That's great. So, did, 
just from your perspective, sure. was IRS kind of, it's a geographically spread out, right? Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. thinking FRTIB is more centrally located. Was that a big difference? Well, we had to have a much, you know, bigger infrastructure at IRS to support our ERM program because it is throughout the country. I think there's 26 different business units within the IRS. You've got your exam, your collection, your customer service, you know, all the functions like IT and and the CFO and research, et cetera, and people all over the country. So at IRS, we needed to have a whole network of (coughs) liaisons to really help us. And (coughs) that was... You know, that was a factor in why the program, you know, was able to take hold and I think sustain at IRS is because we had ERM liaisons in each of the business units mm. who helped, you know, the central staff in, in implementing and, and operating that program. Because we're D.C.-based with the, the thrift um, savings plan, all staff are located here, a much smaller organization. We don't need as much infrastructure. Um, so we can work probably in a, in a much more direct manner with the heads of the offices um, in the risk program. I think that might be just the difference because of the size and structure of the organizations. So I think, yeah, we wanted to ask you a little bit more nitty gritty here, you know, so, you know, for FRT, FRTIB, <laughs> you know, what, what kind of risks do you see there versus an IRS? What's, what's, you know, what are some of your challenges compared to the other place? Yeah. So, you know, at IRS, if I reflect back and I talked, touched on this a little bit, you know, the budget issues were, mm-hmm top of mind the whole time there because of the reductions in funding. And so the risk that that created was the inability to deliver the level of service to Mm -hmm. taxpayers um, and also to maintain the levels of compliance. And so you saw the commissioners of IRS and the leadership during hearings and and in other uh, venues talking about the impact of budget reductions on service. And you saw a couple of years ago where, you know, less than one in five phone calls were being answered because there was not sufficient staffing, for example. Mm. I think that actually helped get attention to the issue, and thankfully through the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRS has gotten a significant amount of funding now to try to build back um, and restore staffing. And this year, you've seen them, I think, uh, up to like a 90% plus level of access and level of service on the phone line, so dramatic turnaround there. And also, you know, beginning to restore their compliance function. So I'm thinking maybe their yep. morale is oh, coming sure. back, right? I mean, morale <laughs> had to be yeah, yeah. I mean, big risk. The workforce at IRS is very committed to get things done. And you think about even during the pandemic, being asked to deliver all the economic impact payments and then the child's um, uh, earned the child credits, getting all that done um, while still trying to deliver the tax season. Now there were challenges there, which led to backlogs and you know the service issues, but to now have the resources to upgrade the IT infrastructure to provide better service, I do think it helps with morale and perhaps helps with recruitment yeah. and retention. So that was, you know, we think about risks at IRS, it was, you know, reductions in service, the eroding compliance, the staffing challenges. Um, hopefully all of those uh, risks should be uh, on the path to mitigation with the additional resources. Now, other areas of risk at IRS, which are, you know, we see also at FRTIB, it's not surprising because this is something that affects all agencies is cyber risk. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, the government is, a, is an attractive target. IRS, of course, because they issue refunds. Um, and so, you know, there's money involved. And, of course, FRTIB has got money involved. So any agency that's, you know, has the ability to issue payments in one way or another can be an attractive target for cyber risk and also for fraud. So that's something yeah. that I think most agencies are probably including some somewhat in their risk uh, registers. At, at IRS, you know, I think our IT, um, the sufficiency of our IT infrastructure was 
um, a significant risk. Um, and again, that's because the agency was you know, relying upon the appropriations and, and uh, the annual budget process, which you know, had, mm -hmm. had a balanced budget and I mean, not a balanced budget, a an actual budget issued in the beginning of the fiscal year since I don't know when. Yeah. <laughs> so trying to plan for uh, investments in IT was always stop and start. The one benefit um, at being at um, Thrift Savings Plan is that we are, you know, we're funded through um, the plan itself. So mm -hmm. we're, we're not subject to the annual appropriation process, which makes it a little bit easier to fund long-term infrastructure, IT investments, um, enhancements. So I think that you know, helps in terms of not having the same type of risk that, you know, we were experiencing at IRS in that area. So, and, I, and speaking of technology at IRS, I mean, wasn't there some, isn't there some modernization things happening now? Was that related to some of the things you guys saw? Yeah, risk? well, you know, they've had a modernization plan in place for a number of years. And mm. in fact, during the prior administration put together um, a modernization strategy, but it was again, dependent upon, um, continued funding mm -hmm. um, and and reliable funding. And of course, that wasn't the case. So, you know, IRS would have to stop and start. And then, of course, the pandemic, I think resources had to be redirected to support, you know, the new payment streams that were required because of the pandemic. So um, that challenge now, hopefully, through the reduction, Inflation Reduction Act and some of the other funding, hopefully they can make some good progress there. Yeah. You know, from what I understand, they've already been able to make a number of enhancements and you know, do putting in place more scanning because uh, still a lot of taxpayers file paper oh, returns. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen a lot of digi digitization <laughs> yes. things out there, efforts happening and stuff like that. We had somebody from that group on the other podcast, the yes. AJ podcast. Did you yeah. file electronically or paper for? I, I'm. A, what do you mean? I, paper? What's that? I haven't, <laughs> I haven't touched paper in years. <laughs> yeah, it's surprising how many folks still want to file on paper, and, and some of that is because there are some forms and schedules that IRS had not. Uh, allowed or enabled to be filed electronically. I think they're oh, wow. they're reducing the number of those forms so that that you know removes a barrier for folks to be able to e-file. Um, but that you know again, getting that paper means somebody historically had to process the paper um, by implementing the scanning technology. All that information now can just be uh, you know electronically scanned um, and then fed into the pipeline uh, directly versus having mm. to sit and wait. And that's what I think really crippled the IRS during the pandemic was the backlog and paper returns, and that stuff just piled up. Mm. Um, and it just took them a long, long time to get through all of that. Um, but I think they've, they're in a good place now, um, thankfully, and hopefully with the additional funding, uh, their IT technology um, will be able to, you know, they'll make, make the gains that they've been striving for for a number of years. So I want to ask you something off the books here. I hadn't sure. prepped you for it. We'll see if you can handle it. Um, <laughs> so... Well, first of all, so are you guys under the CFO now, or wh wh where do you sit in your organization? So I report directly to the chief operating officer. Okay, uh, okay. And, you know, at IRS as well, um, I reported there to the deputy uh, commissioner for operations. This is something, too, that does come up um, across the federal government is where where do you put the ERM function? Well, yeah, and I want this is what I mean, you, you've been <laughs> around this for a while. You're kind of one of our thought leaders in ERM, you know, because at first I was sort of, before all the OMB stuff came out, I mean, I knew there were some programs, one or two programs up and running, and they were not under CFO. And I always thought that's probably the best place to be because you need a more enterprise view. It's not just the money. And then now I'm starting to think, well, you know what? Although, if it's done right, it can be under CFO. You know, they don't concentrate on just, you know, doing internal control reviews. It's more about that is ultimately where the money and the budgeting and things, those decisions happen that you're doing this risk management for to, like, get money to help mitigate issues. I don't know. I'm, I'm starting to feel like maybe it's, it's not a bad place, but what do you think? 
Well, again, uh, you, you know, the answer you often probably hear when you ask these questions is it depends. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, because it does really depend on what the nature of the organization is like. Uh, what's the role of the CFO? What do they have under them? You know, every exactly. agency's yeah. different. Some of them have strategic planning as part of their CFO. They've got internal controls. There might be internal audit associated with mm -hmm. some functions or audit coordination. I do think, at least, you know, based on my experience, that standing up the ERM program, it can be helpful for the agency to set up a separate office or, you know, designate somebody outside the CFO organization yeah. to take that on and get the program up and running. There's mm. a risk, I think, if you affiliate it with another organization, particularly one that might, you know, have responsibility for internal controls, which, depending on how agencies operate their control functions, those can be received or perceived in not, you know, very favorable way. And just if you then just layer, yes. right? mm -hmm. Check it. so if you just layer on, you know, ERM to something that's not already embraced, you know, that, that can hinder, I think, the adoption of ERM. So I think getting the program off the ground can benefit from having a standalone operation. I do think from, an, from sort of an independent standpoint as well, having the CRO or the head of ERM report to you know, the top of the organization or the next level down is important because you do want your risk office to be able to provide kind of uh, an independent view to some extent um, and uh, of risks mm -hmm. the agency may be facing. And I think that's a little bit easier if they're, you know, depending on where they're positioned. Yeah. I, again, getting back to the the firm survey results that are done each year, uh, you know, again, we've seen over time that those agencies that have a CRO or an ERM head um, have made greater progress in implementing ERM versus just yeah. dual hatting somebody mm -hmm. else and saying, you know, you look at some of the CFOs now and they're the performance officer and the risk officer and the data officer yep. and the so <laughs> risk everything. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, like that act, the evidence-based act came out yes. and they're like, okay, now there's a new C-suite person. Who's that going to be? And it's yes. just, well, I'll take it. You know, it's that kind of thing. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's, I mean, yeah, I, I, I've always thought that, that it would make sense to be more of an independent, you know, not reporting to the CFO, but I guess ultimately, the risks have to get to the top somehow, regardless, whether yeah. it's directly to the top or through the CFO, as long as they, you know, are, you know, support this and get it up there, but yes. it's got to get to the top to the director or the head of the agency, whatever. Right. So. If they, if they certainly embrace the whole intent behind ERM and our advocates, it could definitely work. Yeah. We also are trying to, you know, when you, when you look at sort of the, the maturity of ERM, uh, those organizations that get higher on the maturity scale have integrated their ERM with their budget, with their investments. Right. So even if they're not part of the CFO organization, they still need to be working very closely with that organization. Exactly. And and that has always been a challenge too for for agencies as they implement ERM. Is if if we're going through this process and identifying risks and saying we we need to take steps to mitigate this, but then there's no funding. Um, or there's no support for the mitigations, then people get frustrated and say, well, why did you make me go through this whole process if all we end up with is a risk list? Yeah. Um, the key is being able to then, you know, support that with either resources or, you know, technology or policy or whatever it is that's needed to help mitigate that risk. Um, and that's where integration with the budget and the strategy functions really comes into play. Well, good. You handled that one pretty good. <laughs> um, so, you know, you talked about, again, we talked about how are things in 2018? How have they evolved now? Now let's talk about, you know, the future. What would you still like to see, you know, happen with federal ERM, government ERM? What are some things you'd like to see 
happening in, in the near future? Yeah, you know, I, I would like us to be able to reduce the number of risk events that, you know, continue to occur in government. Yeah, they still seem to pop up, don't yes. they? Yes. <laughs> there are, you know, unfortunately, just too many examples. And then you, you sort of look behind some of those and, it's, and you kind of ask, well, where was ERM? Mm -hmm. And part of that is because I think we've just gotten into the habit of, you know, practicing crisis management in government. And, mm. and so... And in some cases, you know, agencies and leadership, you know, that it's all hands on deck and, you know, the resources you could have spent on prevention probably are much less than what we throw at, you know, managing the crisis, but just the way things seem to operate in, in the government. Um, and so, you know, there's always attention to crisis management. I wish we could sort of get more upstream and still get more buy-in to the value of, of risk management. And that's where I think having you know, perhaps, uh, you know, an advocate, a, a stronger advocate, uh, uh, you know, in government for ERM could help. And you may remember, no, Paul, that mm -hmm. a few months ago, I hosted a webinar with um, the head of the risk profession in the UK government. Mm -hmm. And so the United Kingdom, after the COVID uh, pandemic, and as a result of a review that they did of kind of what, what went, you know, what went wrong, what could they have done better? They recognized that there was an opportunity to have in place mechanisms to promote broader sharing of risk information across the departments, you know, broader collaboration, actually shoring up risk, uh, risk programs and supporting the risk profession. And so they, you know, established this new position in the UK government, the head of um, the head of the risk profession. It was his name is Clive Martin, and we had a really good conversation with him. And I think there could be something, you know, for the U.S. to look at there that could help practice of ERM, you know, within the United States by providing that additional support for the practice of risk management across our agencies, helping, yeah. you know, all of those who are trying to do the work on a day-to-day -day basis to give them support. Um, and then also, you know, helping to facilitate that cross-agency collaboration. I do think that's an area we're challenged with and not just in risk, but you look at kind of what's continuing to happen around the sharing of data, around trying to address fraud coming out of the pandemic, you know, we've, we saw a lot of fraud that happened there. And then when you look at root causes, it's because in many cases, agencies don't have access to the data that's They're needed. operating in silos. Yes, yeah. or they don't have the authority. You know, yeah. we have statutes that limit yeah. what agencies can share. And so, you know, a byproduct of that is we allow much more fraud than we should be. So I think if, if the United States were to maybe look at what the UK has done and maybe other governments and thought about, is there an opportunity for us to do something similar, I just think it could help get greater attention and uh, support um, for the practice of ERM you know, here in the United States, and sp certainly supporting all of the, the great folks that are you know, trying to run and operate their ERM programs on a day-to-day -day basis. I got another wacky question for you. Sure. So AI, hmm. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, maybe we need some AI to do some predictive analytics here. Like, you could, could it, you know, put it in chat GPT, you know, what's going to happen <laughs> in the next two years? And it'll be like, well, there's a high possibility of a banking crisis or whatever. But, I mean, you know, you can almost predict these things without thinking about them. I mean, the markets go up and down, things go up and down. I mean, are I don't know. It sounds silly, but truthfully, AI is pretty interesting. I mean, do you see any application for that in the future? You know, I do think it could help us. And, you know, when we think about some of the challenges around known unknowns and unknown unknowns, yeah. it would be interesting to see how AI mm -hmm. could help us, particularly around scenarios. Yeah, so, you know, scenarios. Yeah. So ask ChatGPT, right? <laughs> you know, pose some scenarios and see 
what it comes back with. You know, one of the risks that's been identified now with chat GPT is that, you know, in some cases it makes stuff up. Yeah, um, that's true. <laughs> but, you know, in, in some areas when we're trying to really think beyond the horizon around what could happen, maybe that could be, um, you know, a, a benefit perhaps to, to scenarios and thinking about, you know, things that haven't happened before, but yeah. if they were to occur could have, you know, catastrophic consequences for an organization or, or an agency. Yeah, I mean, my phone seems to always know when I'm going to work and when I'm going home. It, <laughs> it brings true. up the map. It's kind of creepy, but, you know, that's, you know, obvious patterns that we do every day. It seems like it, it, it could figure that out. But, yeah, maybe just processing large amounts of data, making sense out of them, that yes, could help us out I, for sure. Yeah, I think even though we, we have the challenges in sharing and getting access to data um, in, to, to address things like fraud, we also are still dealing with kind of an overwhelming amount of data in other areas that we have access to, but that we haven't, you know, actually figured out how to make the best use of it. And I think that's where we're seeing a number of agencies that are applying, you know, you know, advanced analytics or using AI or using uh, RPA um, to help them actually, you know, draw insights from all of this data. And, and also looking at kind of, um, you know, based on consumer behaviors or taxpayer behaviors at the IRS and being able to predict, um, you know, looking at historical information, we could look at, for example, tax returns and be able to identify where there's the most errors and perhaps identify, you know, ways to actually provide proactive um, service to folks and saying, look, you know, we know this is, we've identified this as a pain point or an, an area where errors are typically identified. So getting up front and ahead of that can be maybe an opportunity where applying some of these additional tools and technologies could help give insight that can help you know, improve compliance and reduce the need for sort of, you know, addressing things at the back end. Yeah, and I was actually thinking about your, you know, the national, the, the kind of national chief risk person or guru for the U.S. Something else they could do is work with other countries. I mean, the pandemic stuff, right? Yes. Like, what if a lesson learned from that is, okay, we need controls in these institutes around the world. Mm -hmm. So that, that's the kind of things that person could promote you know, worldwide kind of things. So as a U.S. government representative. Yeah, kind of you, thing. you may recall that um, I had done some work with the OECD yeah. many years ago. Mm -hmm. and, and actually, in 2018, we established a community of practice for ERM uh, for uh, tax administrations through the OECD. And it actually was great to have that community in place when the pandemic hit because um, the tax administrations worldwide were all dealing with some of the same challenges. Of mm -hmm. course, you know, moving the workforce to, to remote uh, work, taking on new responsibilities. You know, a number of other countries were also asked, their tax agencies were asked to help provide uh, economic payments, um, to help provide relief, to provide, you know, all sorts of new programs. So, you know, through that network, we actually had the opportunity to talk about what we were each, you know, experiencing, some of the different strategies and, and approaches we were taking what risks um, were being identified, and then, you know, sharing lessons learned. So that community is still continuing now, and I think it has provided a great venue because we're not in this alone. And most yeah. of the federal agencies have a counterpart, <laughs> right, in other yeah. countries um, that probably grapple with some of the same risks and some of the same challenges. You look so. at it from a completely <laughs> different perspective, too. Yes, you, you get, a, again, that different viewpoint and maybe understanding kind of, uh, you know, different way in which a risk could occur or risk we hadn't thought about, but somebody else has experienced and put in place, you know, a mitigation that, you know, would help us maybe get ahead of something uh, before we have to deal with it. So I do think yeah. there's an opportunity, as you noted, Paul, that if we had, 
you know, perhaps the head of risk profession in the U.S., that they could, you know, do more of this uh, sharing good practice across other countries and looking for opportunities to pull in. And we're just analyzing what r external risks are going to impact the U.S. So, you know, sure. we got to start doing our own semiconductors or whatever, the <laughs> supply chain thing, right? I mean, yeah, because it's a, you know, we're interconnected world here. Well, maybe they could help, help too, with getting traction on the GAO high risk list. You know, they just came That's out <laughs> with, the, with the update to the high risk list. You know, I think and there are a couple areas where uh, they've made progress, but a number of areas where they've made limited progress. And then you yeah. look at some of those it's typically those that involve multiple agencies. There and, you go. And yeah. that coordination issue mm -hmm. is a real challenge. Um, so maybe that's a potential area where, yeah. you know, this sort of head of risk profession. Is that your next job? <laughs> <laughs> when you retire? <laughs> right. Um, Dan, anything else you want to ask him here before we wrap up? No, this has been fascinating, Tom. Appreciate the discussion. Yeah, well, I appreciate the chance to come back and kind of just reflect on the great progress we've made. I mean, I think that... We do see ERM in, in practice across a number of agencies. It's gotten very mature. It's really helped uh, improve decision-making and reduce risk, you know, exposure to risk. But that said, I do think we have a number of opportunities we've talked about today, and mm -hmm. in particular, you know, trying to just you know, bridge the divide across agencies and, and you know, help us you know, bring together folks in, in addressing and tackling some of these common risks. I think that would be maybe the next level we could take things to. All right. Well, Tom, thanks for joining us today and happy to have you back. All right, well, thanks again. Take care.